Today's show is about a 36-year-old online entrepreneur who started his entrepreneurial journey after amassing $150,000 in savings in his 20s, working in the gaming industry and as a financial advisor. You are going to learn the power of what a baseline level of frugality coupled with using that frugality to empower you to take calculated risks, also known as testing hypotheses, what that can do to turbocharge your success and allow you to build a business that reaches millions of people. And while you might not be able to become the next YouTube star, you can certainly replicate our guest Humphrey's formula for success. And we hope that you come out of this with some ideas for hypotheses that you can and will test in 2024. Hello, our dear listeners, and welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, where we interview Humphrey Yang and talk about his path to over a million YouTube subscribers and a successful content business. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and with me as always is my makes money both on and off the internet co-host, Scott Trench. Thanks, to, thanks, Mindy. It's great to be here with my always has a worldwide web of opportunities to make money, personal finance co-host, Mindy Jensen. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe that financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, or start your own nine or 10 businesses with most of them failing and one succeeding, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards your dreams. Without further ado, let's bring in Humphrey. Humphrey Yang is a former financial advisor turned YouTube financial superstar. With over 1 million subscribers, Humphrey shares video explainers, breaking down complex financial concepts, and telling stories about the tech and finance worlds. Humphrey, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. I am so excited to talk to you today. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Mindy and Scott. How are you? We're doing good. I'm doing good. Scott, I shouldn't talk for you. How are you doing, Scott? We're doing great. Humphrey, we'd love to start off with hearing a little bit about your upbringing and what your family's relationship with finances was like growing up. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I got a lot of my personal finance, I guess, interest from my dad. My dad uh, grew up very poor in China, and uh, my dad's really old also. So this is this is a fact that some people know, maybe from the channel, but my dad's in his 90s now. And so he actually grew up during a really rough time uh, at the time that was in China. And he grew up very poor without, you know, any money to even buy food uh, some days. And so for him, I think, you know, he he immigrated to the United States when he was in his early 40s, I believe, after a stint in the Air Force and uh, flying for some for some airplanes uh, for some airlines, excuse me. And uh, money has always been an interesting subject because. I feel like my dad views it in terms of a scarcity mindset. So in his view, having money meant safety, which meant, you know, he never had to go hungry again. And he didn't want his his kids to experience that. And so throughout my entire upbringing, you know, money has always been a pretty central topic in just conversation. Like, this is why you need to save all your money. This is why you you should not spend money frivolously. This is why you should be frugal because you never know what's going to happen. This is why you don't really want to get into debt. Because debt can erode your money. And, you know, if you make a few mistakes, you could lose it all. And so for us growing up, me and my siblings, it's always been like we we view money from a scarcity mindset. And I'm now trying to reprogram myself to more of a abundance mindset, if you will, because I also am probably more risk averse than your average uh, 35, 36 year old. Yeah. Because of what I've been taught from my parents. Right. So. 
you know, I feel like money is usually a subject that you learn from your parents and your family. So um, for me, I need to kind of like break free from from that mindset in particular. Do you find yourself being more frugal because of your upbringing or more spendy because of your upbringing? Uh, definitely more frugal. So usually I, if I'm going to buy something, I always think about, you know, do I actually need this item? Will this item actually fulfill my needs in some sort of way? And if the answer is even a shadow of doubt, a little bit, no, then I might kind of hold off on that purchase at least for 24 hours, sometimes up to a week. And then I see if I still want it after a week or maybe even a month. And if I ultimately still want that thing, then I will go and buy it. But if it's not a huge necessity, I oftentimes just don't, I just opt for not buying it. So Humphrey, did this, did this translate this uh, uh, mentality around frugality translate to a rapid accumulation of wealth? in your college and years and, and, and right afterwards? I mean, yeah, I would say compared to my peers. Yes. Uh, I always think I could be better obviously. And it also depends on how much money you're making, but I mean, that's all wealth is. It's just the difference between how much you spend versus how much you make. And if you're able to accumulate a big difference of that and invest it accordingly, then you are going to become wealthier than someone else might be if they're, if they're spending the majority of their income. Um, so I would say yes. I think that, you know, I still go into it these days with if I make $10, I try to only spend two to three dollars. Obviously, that's sometimes not very realistic because rent is so expensive. Food is so expensive and all these things. That's my goal. That's my ultimate target. But oftentimes it's it plays out a lot higher. Right. Like I might spend seven of those ten dollars. But the idea is that at least a 30 percent savings rate is still way higher than the average American does. So uh I like to view any savings percentage as over 15% as a win. And so if I, if I'm overshooting my target, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going for eight and I can only save four. It's not the end of the world. Right. You know, so. So do you feel like you're depriving yourself of things? Do you, do you wish you could spend more and feel guilty when you do? She asked as though that was her exact same story. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that I could spend money on, right? Like if I go, like I'm going to Phoenix this weekend, I could have bought a first class ticket, but I decided to choose economy instead. Or, you know, I, I can eat a $30 lunch every lunch, every day. If I wanted to, I've done the math. I can make, I can spend $30 on lunch every day and not have to worry about it. But yet I go to Chipotle or I go somewhere that's really cheap because I know it's, it's easier or I make food at home because it's going to save me X amount of money. Sometimes it's just like I like to not spend money because it's more fun that way. I don't know why, but, you know, that's kind of the deal, I guess. It's a game. It's a game. And you're like, ooh, how little can I spend today? How little can I spend this week? You you play these games with yourself because when you're saving money, then that's better, according to these frugal rules that we tell ourselves and that our parents tell us as they're raising us in frugality because I am a child of the – I'm a grandchild of the Great Depression, so kind of a similar – situation with your dad. Um, I also don't spend the money that I could spend because why would I? I could just save it instead. The, the other thing is, is that sometimes you have to think about why you're saving, right? And so sometimes I'm like irrationally frugal. It's like, okay, it's just going to, I'm not going to take it with me when I pass away. So what's the, what's the point half the time? But I feel like I still have so much, so many more years left in my life, knock on wood that, you know, I'd rather save it for now. So See where I can get to. Okay, so how do you break out of that mindset? Do you have any? Have you tried to break out of that that frugality mindset and spending on things? Uh, this is this is a work 
in progress for me too. Yeah. I think a really good exercise is to, uh, you know, I put in a Google sheet or a spreadsheet, like what my dream spend is per category. Right. So like if I didn't have to worry about money at all, how much would I love to spend on every single category? Do I want a $7 coffee every day? How much is that going to cost me? Do I want a $30 lunch every day? Like I just talked about, how much is that going to cost me dinner? I do the same thing. How many, how much money do you want to spend on clothes? And oftentimes what you'll find is that you don't, you don't actually need that much money to hit your dream spend, right? Or it might be closer than, than you think. I try to spend a percentage of the passive income that I'm generating and save essentially all of the active income that makes me feel good and sleep well at night. Um, that probably resulted in way too much sacrifice for the first you know 10 years of that journey. Um, but that's cause I'm uh, very hardcore and and have that kind of mentality. That's amazing. So basically you've gotten your passive income to a point where it, is it your fun money or is it you're just completely living off of your passive income now? I spend less than my passive income, uh, than the passive income that I generate. I just also work this full-time job many hours a week because I love it uh, here at Bigger Pockets. So perhaps, perhaps like you, uh, with your with, with your you know business, you're a highly successful entrepreneur. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to ask about the frugality and spend so much time here on this is this is because I believe I have a I have a hypothesis. I like to test. And you tell me I'm wrong. Uh, that there's a huge interplay between this long-term habit of frugality and discipline with your spending and the opportunities that have been presented to you in the twists and turns in your career. Can we hear about it and, and let me know if that's close? Like, Are you saying that that the long-term compounding of frugality leads to better opportunities or are you yes. saying that it affords you better opportunities in, in a way? Both. I think, I think, I think it, it allows you, it allows a, a opportunity, for example, to start a YouTube channel to be an opportunity and not a risk. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I take a lot, I, all the risks I've taken in my life are due to a safety net that I've accumulated over time. And knowing that my cost of living is so low that I don't need that much to survive. And I'd like to keep my means, or sorry, my cost of living, or I'd like to keep the amount that it takes to run my, my life as low as possible in order to take more risks in the future. Yes, definitely. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. 
As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Well, can we hear about, can we hear about your career and, you know, the college years and what, what you've been up to, um, in order to get to this, this point? Yeah. So I didn't know what I wanted to do in college. I went to the university of Washington for two years and, uh, I was kind of depressed up there cause it's so rainy. And so I actually transferred to a, uh, school called Loyola Marymount university in Los Angeles when I finished up and I finished up at the end of the financial crisis of 2008 I actually graduated in 2009, so jobs were hard to come by at that time. I spent some time in Asia for six months afterwards on a study abroad program, uh, just trying to strengthen my Chinese. It's a very kind of procrastinating thing to do. (laughs) And then I came back to America and lived with my dad for a long time, and I just didn't know what I wanted to do. But I was interested in a few things. I got my degree in finance. So I was interested in finance. I was also a big video gamer growing up, so I also wanted to try a career in gaming. And my first job out of college was uh, customer support for a Facebook game company. They made Facebook games similar to Farmville, if you remember those. I did customer support there for a year, year and a half. And then I ultimately didn't like that job because it's customer support. And um, I was interviewing with Merrill Lynch at the time, at the same time. And And I got a position as a financial advisor. So I was a financial advisor for an, about a year to year and a half as well. I got my series seven and, and 66 while I was there. And then after that, I practiced for about six months. Was the financial advisor role, sometimes those can be very high commission roles and sometimes those are salaried roles. Which one of those was it for, for you? Uh, they gave me a base salary of uh, $49,000 a year, I believe. This was in 2012, 2011, 2012. And uh, with the expectation of it transitioning slowly over the course of four years into a commission only uh, salaried role. And I think a large portion of the role was to prospect your network and try to get assets under management for Merrill. And that was basically their program. It was called the PMD program. And, and, you know, in exchange for the Series 766, the expectation was you're going to be prospecting clients after you're fully licensed and you might work on a team and you might help 
help some of the more senior advisors. What happens next? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what happens next? A lot of uh, uncertainty. Like I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I definitely wasn't happy at the financial advisor role. I kind of just realized that, you know, a lot of these, I'm not, not Merrill in particular, but a lot of these big banks and their financial advisory programs, what they do is they, in terms of investing, they kind of just put you in standardized products that are approved by by the big firms, right? And so a lot of these big products are typically some sort of fancier ETF or a, a mixture of ETFs that are low risk, um, predictable for their clients. And a lot of the financial advisory business was managing the relationship, right? Like I think we had one advisor who was very successful who said, I don't actually manage money. I manage relationships. I manage expectations and I manage relationships and people are happy. And that's who they call. They call me when 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 things are not going well, you know, in the market, for example. Um, obviously, I still think financial advisors are good for certain use cases. For example, if you uh, need estate planning, tax planning, uh, certain college fund planning, if you have specific situations, then you might need a financial advisor. That's what I tell my friends that are looking into one. However, if you're just looking for investment returns, I'm sure you guys have heard that like active fund managers don't ever beat the market or you know, most of them don't break the market. So you might as well just invest in a low cost S&P 500 index fund. I still believe in that. And it was kind of uh, reinforced to me that way when I was at, uh, when I learned about that at the, at the job. I always wanted to be a financial advisor. Right? Like I, that was one of the things that was like, I was really excited because I've always loved personal finance. So if you can tell uh, uh, from this podcast here, but you know, financial, I, I realized pretty quickly in like the first year of my career that becoming a financial advisor was doing that kind of stuff. And that's kind of, it's almost a little disheartening, isn't it? Like that's, that's a true, like a lot of people love talking about this and help people build wealth. It's a shame that so much, such a huge percentage of the industry monetizes with those AUM fees or you didn't even mention this, but life insurance products, for example, and not the nitty gritty helping people actually plan their estates and do, you know, do those work, uh, do that kind of work. That is really where I think the real value is added to people, to the client's lives. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I definitely agree with you. I think there are definitely some advisors that are doing, I don't know, God's work and they're actually, you know, helping people with their finances, but a large percentage of the industry is just, yes, let's, let's get your assets under management. Let's charge you a fee and let's put you in some products and, you know, we'll have a call once a quarter and hopefully that'll be that, <laughs> you know? So, uh, yep. So that's that. And then I guess you wanted to know where I wanted to, what I did after that, I suppose. That's, yes, please. Yeah. After that, I, I did, I did an investment banking internship for like six months. Cause I thought it was like better, better finance, if you will. I don't know if that, if that meant anything, but at this point I was kind of lost in my life, I suppose. And then I, I decided I wanted to go back into video games. So it was like 2014. I find a new company that a friend refers me to. It's called Machine Zone. And I start off there as a quality assurance specialist, but then quickly I get a job helping them with monetization. So I'm about six months into this job. Uh, into the, the quality assurance and I get a job switch to monetization. And Machine Zone was a really interesting uh, company. Machine Zone was Y Combinator backed and they had just raised a bunch of money uh, because their games were monetizing very heavily. Uh, their flagship game was called Game of War and their second flagship game was called Mobile Strike. And if you remember the, those two games, they had Super Bowl commercials back in 2015, 2016. Arnold Schwarzenegger was in one. Kate Hudson, not Kate Hudson, Kate Upton was in another one. Mariah Carey was in one. This is like the rage back then. As a monetization specialist, what I was doing was I was designing in-game 
packages, in-app purchases packages for people to buy whenever they logged into the game. So whenever you log into the game, you would get like an offer thrown at you like, hey, do you want to buy this package for 50 bucks? This is These are all the in-game items you get. You had to kind of manage a little bit. You want to make sure you're not like putting too many like great items in the package so that it's ruining your in-game economy. And you also have to kind of title it and make a cool piece of art, right? Like you want to make it look as beautiful as possible. And so I did that for two straight years and that was a pretty grueling job. It was almost like a trading desk because we get we got real-time stats of how much money was being spent in the video game every single minute. And there were hourly targets and there were daily targets and there were monthly targets of how much money we needed to make every single month in order to continue our upward growth trajectory. And this game was pulling in a couple million dollars a day. Like this thing was crazy. Like uh, at one point, this company was valued at five or six billion dollars in, in its heyday, and uh, I I helped sell these in app purchases. So I got a lot of like real time feedback, real time data. I learned how to A/B test really well. I learned how to kind of look at this data and make experimental inferences about what was going on. And I would say this period of my life, which was two two straight years of just like almost twenty four seven all the time. Um, really taught me a lot about just like marketing, psychology, uh, data analytics, A-B testing, everything that you could think of to, to grow a business, I, I would say. Awesome. And, and so what, what years were you there? And then what did you do next? Uh, early 2014 to 20, late 2016. So it would have been like two, two years and change maybe. Uh, in 2017, I started a business called Your Own Maps. I wanted to sell posters online. I don't know why. Like a friend of mine came to me and said, "Hey, we should sell some posters online." I'm like, "Okay." Well, I quit my job and I wanted to start my own business. So, so okay, perfect. I mean, I want to ask about this transition. So, you've been working for a couple of years, and so is this the point in your journey where the frugality that's under under an underpinning behind all of this career progression, yeah, begins to pay off and affords you the opportunity to take a risk on a business? Yeah, yeah, it definitely did. I think I had at least $150,000 saved up. So uh, I was living at home too, which was great because I'm not spending any money on rent. I have 150K saved up and I'm like, okay, I can quit my job for a few few months. I can think of something. I wanted to start a business and I didn't know what to start. So January, 2017, a friend of mine comes to me. He had just came from Europe and he was working for Facebook. And he was like, hey, I've seen this business model in Europe do really well where they sell these custom posters of these maps. And we could do that here in America. I was like, okay, great, let's do it. And so I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I knew that I could do, I'm always a big believer that I can learn learn how to do anything. And so we spent a few months developing the website and what it will look like. I spent a, uh, a couple months looking for a supplier, so someone to print the actual product and then ship the products to end customers. I guess I'm kind of fast forwarding a little bit, but it, it was a, it was a tough time of six months of not sure what to do. I spent about 20k on the website initially, so of the 150k I had, you know, I still had 130k. Of course, I was still spending money eating eating food and you know seeing my friends and like you know doing entertainment stuff. But because of the frugality, that definitely afforded me that opportunity, right? And I could have done it for another year or two without making any money at all and been totally fine. And so that's what I tell some people who want to do something on entrepreneurial on their own. It's like you need at least a good nest egg of six months to a year of living expenses for a real shot at these things. Because my own business wasn't even successful until maybe month nine. And so like if you're thinking like and that's 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 good, by the way, a lot of these businesses don't break even until year three. 
And so uh, for me, I was lucky in that we started to make some profit right away and, you know, see some success there. Um, I still wasn't drawing that much money from the business. My first year salary was maybe thirty five, thirty eight thousand dollars um, and then the next year was forty forty five so it was it was it, it, it showed me that I could do it, but it showed me that I also needed to think of something different if I wanted to make more than forty or fifty thousand dollars if that makes sense you You were mapping out the journey to financial independence oh Scott, what a terrible yeah. pun. sorry Good yeah. pun. thank you for uh, the, <laughs> the groan i appreciate it guys yeah so uh, i did this business from 2017 to to middle 2019 and at the same time i'm trying all these other different types of things right like i'm trying i started i tried to create a budgeting app you know i hired someone on upwork i'm like trying i'm trying different things i'm trying uh i wrote an ebook on like how to email market. And I tried to market that on Twitter. And then I also tried drop shipping, which I failed at. Drop shipping was way harder than actually starting a real business, in my opinion. Wait, but the guys on the internet say that you could just, you just start it and you make all this money. What do you mean? That's not true? It's a, it's actually, I think it's, it's a really great way for people to get into online e-commerce for a very low price point. But it comes with a lot of risks. And I think it's more of an art form to do it right, correctly. And and what's funny is that if you become really great at drop shipping, you actually just want to create a white label business or like a real e-commerce business. So it's like you're doing all this steps to just get to where I already was at. So for me, like I was like happy doing just like the straight up e-commerce business, but drop shipping is hard. Definitely not easy. And I think it's hard not because of selling the product. I think it's hard because of the logistics behind the scenes. It's like they're, it's, the products are coming from China. If they're coming from China, it's like a three-week ship time. And so now you have to deal with customers that are pissed off at you because of the three-week ship time. And then you have to deal with the payment processors that are getting charged back from those customers because the product's not coming in time. And then you have quality issues and you have all these like, it's just like not the best model if you want to like have a great experience for the customer. Um, but it's a good model for those entrepreneurs that are trying business for the first time and they don't have more than like three thousand dollars to spend so so you tried an ebook we have a drop shipping business we have a map business um what else is going on here and how many how many of these uh initiatives go on until you settle on making videos yeah i probably had like four to five different initiatives from 2017 to 2019 that i tried uh some with other friends some by myself uh, i also did some consulting on the side just to make an extra income. Like I would consult for this one marketing company. I, it was at the time called marketer hire. And so like other e-commerce businesses would hire me to help them with their email marketing or their marketing in general. And all these principles I learned from the, from the, from the video game business, by the way, like just marketing and psychology. So a B testing, right? That seems like that. That's a, that's like huge competency. Yeah. And it's actually not too hard, but then it's like knowing to understand, understanding if like the data that you have is statistically significant and, you know, making hypotheses about the next test and next iteration. So it was about middle 2019 that I was like, okay, maybe I should try making some videos on YouTube because I just listened to a Naval Ravikant podcast and he was all about scaling, scaling yourself through either code or media. And I was like, okay, let's try some YouTube videos. I really believe in what he says there. So I tried three YouTube videos. They went nowhere. I had 10 views on each one because I sent them to all my 10, 10 friends. I kind of gave up on it, to be honest. I made three. I was like, okay, that was a good try, whatever. It was just another initiative at the time. 
But then in, uh, I was I, I I caught myself watching TikTok in 2019, and this was at a time when people my age weren't watching TikTok. It was mostly teens, I would say. And I, I would watch it every night before bed. I thought it was pretty funny, and I was pretty addicted to it. And then at some point that fall, it kind of dawned on me, like, hey, I should check if anyone's making personal finance videos on TikTok. And nobody was. There was one video. Uh, I searched hashtag personal finance. There was one, literally, literally one video. And there was one guy making videos about stocks. And they weren't that good. So I said, okay, if I can be first to market on here, maybe I can get some traction and get people over to my YouTube channel. And then eventually I can make YouTube videos. That was my whole goal. And so uh, towards the end of 2019, I decided to have a goal of making 30 straight TikToks in a row. 30 days. I think on day 11, I got like, I had a video that got 100,000 views on day 11. And that got me like 1,500 followers. And I was like, wow, that's cool. That's way more than I've ever gotten on YouTube. And I think on day like 17, I had a video go viral and get like 3 million views. And I got like 100,000 subscribers, sorry, 100,000 followers on TikTok at the time from that one video. So by the end of 30 days, I had 100. 20k followers on tiktok and i was like all right well i'm gonna keep going because like clearly there's demand for this type of content and so by the time the pandemic actually started i already had like 350,000 followers which was great and um and then i had nothing to do because it was the it was covid there was nothing to do so i was like oh i might as well just keep making a video every day because <laughs> it's like dude i'm already here there's nothing else to do I, you know it's easy to make a video um gave me some purpose throughout COVID. And uh, at that time I started to kind of slow down on the maps business because it wasn't doing that well anymore. And so it was just kind of was like a slow shift towards video creation. And then at the same time and during COVID, I started to make YouTube videos again and I've just been going ever since. They say that uh, nine out of 10 businesses fail. And so your approach is to start 10 businesses. <laughs> I probably, I probably tried 10 different initiatives for sure um, throughout my life. And, you know, they might have not have been like great initiatives, but at least like a month here and there, you know, a couple months here and there, et cetera. Yeah. But I mean, if you think about it, it took you three years to get, uh, to find what worked for you um, with these things. You, you kept your expenses really low. You applied a, a skill set and the scientific method to a variety of different businesses. And when you hit one, you went in, you went in, you went all in and you, you, you love it clearly uh, with it. And it's been super successful. So I think it's, it's, uh, uh, what, I mean, I think it should be inspiring to folks. Like if you can actually accumulate the capital so that you and have the time and space to try these initiatives, you can fail six, seven, eight, nine times, uh, over a two or three year period and hit a winner, um, on that. That's not unachievable. For a lot of folks, I think, listening to this. Yeah, I definitely think it takes more than one shot. I have friends that take one shot at something and they give up. Um, but I also think I had an unfair advantage because I was able to live at home. Not many people can live at home for free in the Bay Area, right? Like I was saving 2K, 3K a month on rent. Um, and I was okay living at home. That's another thing. And some people in their thirty early 30s might not want to live at home because of embarrassment or whatever. And I it didn't bother me. So... Before the podcast, Mindy asked me if I was married and have kids. And the answer is no, because I probably spent four of my prime years living at home and not really dating. So it's like, <laughs> well, let's get into your processes for making these videos. You know, like, like what was it? You just stick a camera, uh, 
take a look at it. Um, uh, how, how, you know, how, how, did, how, how did it start and how, what is it like now? Oh yeah. It's way different now than when it started, right? When it started, I'm literally making a video about any topic that comes to mind that I think is remotely financially personal finance related. And there's no thought behind the topic. It's just like, Hey, this is, that sounds interesting. Like, let's make a video about that. Or, uh, Airbnb is IPOing this week. Why don't we make a video about that? Or uh, the presidential election is here. Why don't we make a video about that? Some of those topics could be good, but I was literally just turning up. There was one video I made that was like comparing the difference between Bitcoin and Pokemon cards as an investment. And it was just a bad bit. Like that's such a bad topic, but I was thought it was great at the time. And so in the beginning, it was very much like, let's just make whatever. And see what sticks. And I, I still think that's a really great method, right? Like you're testing all these different things and seeing what sticks and what doesn't. But as I've gotten better at YouTube over the years, it's definitely more methodical in terms of what topics we choose. And topic is topic selection is, I think, one of the most important things on YouTube because uh, it determines your market size, right? Like if you make a topic about coconut water from Bali or something like that, you might, you know, the ceiling for that might be 100,000 views, but if you made, you know, made a video about the toxicity of carbonated water, I don't know. I just saw you drinking a bubbly. You know, you might be able to get two million views on that because it's a way wider, broader topic. So uh, I always think about market size now when I think about making a YouTube video. I have a mini fridge with nothing but cherry bubbly in it right next to my office. That's not a joke or an exaggeration. <laughs> well, there you go. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions? I know it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney.
Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. Saving for a down payment? A wedding? We're just looking for extra money to invest. Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney netsuite.com slash BP money. If somebody is listening to this episode right now and thinks I want to be the next Humphrey Yang, what is your advice to somebody who wants to start making money online? Yeah. So if you want to do YouTube videos, my advice is always make searchable content in the beginning, like have a library of 50 to hundred searchable video topics uh, at the, at the beginning, because that builds you a strong base and so, like, you know that certain topics are always going to be searched. Like, for example, what is al- asset allocation? That is a great video that you can make that's four, min- four to five minutes long talking about what it exactly is. 
And if you have like, if you think about it, if you have 50 different topics like that, like what is asset allocation? What is risk? Um, uh, what are some of the index? What things should you look for in index funds? All these searchable type topics. Eventually, every one of those videos is going to start compounding for you with views over time. And you're going to build like a nice base of views on your channel over the course of a year or two. And then that's when you can start to like kind of play around with like the types of topics you can do to try to hit more trendy type of topics and try to capitalize on high viewership. It's like imagine you had a channel with like 50 of those like like, you know, financial explainers. I'm just talking about finance because that's what I got. Um and then all of a sudden Silicon Valley bank crashes. You can make a Silicon Valley bank video, which would have gotten you an outsized number of views. And then people would be interested in all your other topics because it's kind of financially adjacent. And then you can kind of build your brand that way. I think too many people just give up on their YouTube videos. I, I was about to give up after video three, right? But I think Ali Abdal says this, which is, he's a productivity YouTuber. He says it takes like 50 to 100 videos. And I think even Mr. Beast has said like, hey, if you're trying to become a YouTuber, make a hundred videos and then talk to me. Like, don't talk to me before a hundred videos. So I think it, it takes a long-term mindset of like, let's do this for a really long time and see what happens and then and then adjust. Is this just you doing this or do you have a team? Is there like a bunch of people behind you helping you out? It's mostly me and an editor. So uh, my editor has been with me since 2020, November 2020. And he actually reached out to me in June of 2020. This was very early on. I had no YouTube presence. I had... 500,000 people on TikTok maybe. And he just DM'd me cold and said, hey, I'd like to edit for you one day. And I kind of ignored him for a few months. And then I needed one in November. And so yeah, I was ed- I edited my first 100 videos myself probably. And then I and then I hired him. And then uh, he's been working with me since. And he's actually improved his editing skills so much. And he's, he's definitely like wants to learn. He's someone who's entrepreneurial as well. And so we get along really well. And um, a huge reason why we have so much success is because of his animations on the channel. Like if you notice a lot of our videos are animated quite well and he's an editor plus animator, which is hard to find. Usually you have to find two different people that are editors plus animators, but he taught himself animation throughout the last three years. So uh, very thankful for him. And then, so it's just me and him. And then I have a guy that helps me make thumbnails and that's it. And uh, I'm trying to find another editor so that I can come out with more videos next year. So, okay. Well, that is, uh, that, that leads me to my last question. What is the future of your content and, and your financial journey? Where are you going next year? What are you focusing on? Yeah. I have a lot of financial YouTuber friends. They make a lot of money and sometimes I feel bad because I don't make as much as them. And, and I think they make a lot of money because they're hyper-focused on their niche. They might sell a product or they might offer a service or they might offer a course or something like that. And they're able to capitalize on that. They might have better affiliate links for the certain niche that they're in. I still don't know how I feel about selling a course. I don't love it. I think a lot of the information that you can get online is free anyway. So like, what would, what would my value of a course be? Maybe it would be to con- uh, concisely condense everything. So it was just like really easy for you and like really easy, easily served. But right now, I don't think I have a product or a service or a course offering that really fits my channel perfectly that I could offer to my audience. So right now, I'm not creating a a side business off of the audience right now, off of my channel. And so my goal, my goal is still to do YouTube in five, 10 years. And so I really want to continue to grow the presence that I have online, continue to grow viewership. And I think sometimes just making videos is all I need to do. I think that uh, all the biggest YouTubers, you know, if you look at like Marquez Brownlee in the tech space, he's been doing YouTube videos for 15 years. 
he hasn't really sold a product or a service too hard either. He has kind of like a merch line ish, but it's not like he's got like a flagship product or a flagship business that he runs on the side. His main business is videos. And for 15 years it has worked. So clearly there's like that business model that works. It's like, let's just make great videos. And I kind of just want to keep doing that. That's fantastic. You need to protect your audience. You're not selling anything right now. And that's what your audience loves. You're giving them great content at without like just bombarding them with stuff. You're, you're genuine in your delivery. And when somebody is like trying to sell something and be skeezy, that comes across. It oozes out of every pore that they have. And you're like, nope, next. And there's, I don't know if you know this. You're not the only guy on YouTube. There's no shortage of guys on YouTube. So they'll just go find somebody else that they connect with better. On the other hand, you have an audience and they watch you because they like you. They want to learn from you. So if you have something that aligns with what they're looking for, even if it's all over the internet for free, there is a value for somebody whose voice that they appreciate gathering it all together in one place for them to find this information. So just uh, if you do do a course, give them $200,000 worth of information for 20 bucks, not 20 bucks worth of information for $200,000 because there's no sort of those guys either. Yeah, I think it's just I haven't found something that aligns with me perfectly just yet. And I'm definitely searching for something like that. I know it's part of my longer term vision. But for now, you know, I don't feel a, a, an immense pressure. Uh, you know, I to do that right now. Yeah, you don't have to. How about just a t-shirt with he- with uh, Humphrey Yang's face? <laughs> I don't know if anybody's <laughs> going to buy that. But, <laughs> but, but Humphrey, before we adjourn here, uh, is there a place where people can go find out more about you? Yes, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's Humphrey Yang. And then I also have a newsletter. It's called Hump Days. It's on Substack. So we come out with business news twice a week for free, Wednesdays and Fridays, humpdays.substack.com. That's perfect. That's where you can find me. Humphrey, thank you so much for your time today. This was so much fun. And we will talk to you soon. Cool. Thank you, Mindy and Scott, for having me in Bigger Pockets. All right, Scott. That was Humphrey Yang. And that was super fun. I love his story. I felt... uh kinship with him with the whole growing up frugal and now saving everything you have. And uh, yeah, we both need to work on that a little bit more. What did you think of his story? I thought it was dangerous because I have a clear and obvious bias for how I think is a, a really good formula for building wealth. And he largely fit right into that bias by spending so little, <laughs> finding opportunities to increase his income, saving a bunch, and then trying 10 op- entrepreneurial journeys, which is like my like dream blueprint for success. If only he'd house hacked as well, uh, but he got to live for free. So, you know, I guess that's part of it. So, but yeah. I, he kind of house hacked. Yeah. He hacked his housing by not paying anything. Yeah. It, it does not make a rule, but I, I, I just think it's such a, such a high probability path uh, for success. And, you know, you can replicate, you can swap out the living with the parents with a house hack, for example, and have many of the same opportunities there um, in many parts of the country, probably not San Francisco where he's from, um, but in many, many parts of the country. Yes. And he mentioned unfair advantages. Uh, I think that everybody has an advantage. I don't, I don't like the phrase unfair because everybody has an advantage. Take advantage of your advantages. There's a lot of people who have advantages. They don't take advantage of them. They don't use them at all. They just let them sit. And then it's just a waste. So if you have an advantage, use it. Use what you have to further. Scott, you have a big brain. You use that in your day-to-day life. You use that in your job. That's giving you an advantage over anybody else that was going to be CEO. They didn't have the same brain that you had, and therefore they're not CEO. It's just 
what you have. You use the tools in your toolbox to further your career, to further your steps. So yeah, when you have something that you can use, take advantage of it. Well, thank you for the big brain comment, Mindy. I really appreciate it. I also have incredible admiration for your enormous brain and the ways that you put that to you, to use. And I'll throw another one for you, which is your community. You're an incredible community builder and you use that advantage uh, in a lot of unfair quote unquote ways, um, to, to, to bring happiness, joy, and business into your life and business opportunities. So love that. Um, and, and in so many ways, um, I do want to throw out a question here. What hypothesis Mindy, are you going to test in 2024? I am going to test. Wow. Scott put me on the spot. What are you going to test while I think of one? I am going to test the hypothesis that there are a large number of people who are losing money investing in passive syndications at this point in time because of the market dynamics and unfortunate realities of higher interest rates. And that those folks are going to take this opportunity as a lesson and and spend a large amount of time learning how to run the nuts and bolts of analysis on passive investment opportunities like apartment complexes and syndication deals, like self-storage, like debt funds, and that there's an opportunity for bigger pockets to provide an educational platform that does very rigorous analysis on those types of deals um, and helps people make really highly informed decisions about what the bet they're actually making is in those types of things. So we're going to call it Passive Pockets and we're going to launch it sometime in 2024. That's my hypothesis. My hypothesis that I am going to test throughout the entirety of 2024 is that spending on things that bring me joy or that make my life easier is not going to hurt my overall financial position and will in fact make my life better. So I am going to do that. And I've started and stopped and started and stopped. And I've got um, kind of a list of things that I want to accomplish next year and spending money to get them done is now going to be the way that I go as opposed to doing it all myself. Those who are, are listening here, thank you so much for joining us today. We'd love to hear what your hypothesis that you're going to test for 2024 is. Uh, please share that with us in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash BP money. And we'll be looking there. All right, Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. That wraps up this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. He is Scott Trench and I am Mindy Jensen saying Toodles, golden doodles. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple. And if you're looking for even more money content, feel free to visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash biggerpocketsmoney. Bigger Pockets Money was created by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Lastly, a big thank you to the Bigger Pockets team for making this show possible. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the Bigger Pockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com/deals 
enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.